Today we will focus our attention on God's love. God's love that gives us life, liberty, and produces love within ourselves. Love toward Him and love towards one another. Psalm 119, verses 41 to 48. May your loving kindnesses also come to me, O Lord, your salvation according to your word. So I shall have an answer for him who reproaches me, for I trust in your word. And do not take the word of truth utterly out of my mouth, for I wait for your ordinances. So I will keep your law continually forever and ever. And I will walk at liberty, for I seek your precepts. I will also speak of your testimonies before kings, and shall not be ashamed. And I shall delight in your commandments, which I love. And I shall lift up my hands to your commandments, which I love. And I will meditate on your statutes. Let's pray. Our Father, we know that your loving kindnesses transform us. Your love manifested to us, revealed to us by your word and Holy Spirit, change us and renew us and make us from being dead creatures to living creatures. Those who were enslaved to those who now have liberty. Those who did not know love, true love, genuine love, now understand it. Thank you, Lord, for your word that produces these things in us. Now we pray you will show us more significantly and give us greater understanding and conviction about these things that are revealed here. We pray, Father, that we will grow in this understanding and be able to correctly communicate and explain this to our own loved ones. In Christ's name, amen. In the scriptures, there are several exhortations on knowing the Bible and loving the Bible and adhering to the Bible. There are many such exhortations. And we as Christians are called upon to know these and to do these kinds of exhortations, to obey them. Now, the question is, are these clearly here for us to understand? Let me read a few of these exhortations. James 1, 18. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, so that we might be, as it were, the first fruits among his creatures. By his will, God's will, God brought us forth by the word of truth. He brought us forth, he produced in us something good. The word of truth is what produced it in us, so that we might be first fruits among his creatures. James 1, 21. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. He says to put aside all of the evil things we used to do, and in humility receive the word implanted. When we receive this word implanted, he says, which is able to save your souls. This word implanted is not to be rejected. It's not to be uprooted from us. It's not to be thrown away. It's supposed to remain there so that it bears fruit and it's able to save our souls. That's how important this word is. And he's clearly telling us that this is what we need. We need it 
for our salvation. First Peter, first Peter, chapter one, one twenty three, he says, for you have been born again, not of seed, which is perishable, but imperishable. That is through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all is glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls off. But the word of the Lord abides forever. And this is the word which was preached to you. The Apostle Peter now clearly says that we were born again, not of perishable seed, but imperishable seed, the living and abiding word of God, And this word lasts forever, and this is the word which was preached to you. That is, he's talking about the gospel. It is the gospel that is the living and abiding word of God and is imperishable. That's how important the gospel message is. It saves people from their sins. Then, 1 Peter 2. 1 Peter 2, verses 1 to 3. Therefore, putting aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisy and all uh, envy and slander... Like newborn babes, long for the pure milk of the word, that by it you may grow in respect to salvation, if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. Peter also, just as James did in in James 1.21, tells us to put aside all the evils that we used to practice, and like newborn babes or infants, long for the pure milk of the word, the word of God, and grow in respect to salvation, if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. So if you had that taste upon your conversion, then grow in that and desire more and more and more and more like newborn infants do until they grow and become mature. And then eventually they will take themselves off. They will want to be off that milk. And that brings us to Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews 5 verses 11 to 14. Hebrews 5 11. Concerning him, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food is for the mature who, because of practice, have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Chapter 6, verse 1. Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of instruction about washings and laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we shall do if God permits. Here, the apostle is admonishing the people. They should have, after years and years of being in the faith, been able to teach other people, to teach their neighbor, to teach their family something, some good things, some more mature things about the gospel. Not the basic things like repentance uh, from dead works, faith, instruction about washings, laying on of hands, resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. Here, Here he's calling these basic and elementary things. You should know that already and be able to move on and teach other things. But how does this happen? It happens because you press on. He says in verses, in chapter 5, 13, Everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is a babe or an infant. But solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. These passages clearly, clearly 
plainly tell us we need the Word of God to save us from our sins so that we might be born again and also for us to mature in the faith. Do they not? Do they not clearly, plainly tell us these things, these truths? Well, it's necessary to point out a distinction, to make a demarcation between what is clearly and evidently taught in the Bible and what is happening all around us. Because there are many people who absolutely despise this Word of God and they despise even the passages that exhort us to long for the Word of God. There are many people around us and these people are even in the pulpits all around the world. They are in Christian pulpits, in Christian churches of various denominations, of large churches and of small churches. Two examples. Two examples. One example, the example is of a large church. Headline says that a pastor says Christianity is irrelevant if it continues quoting the Bible. Subtitle says church must accept homosexuality. Okay, and who are these? Rob Bell. Rob Bell, pastor, uh, used to be a pastor of a 10,000 member church, Mars Hill Bible Church. The name of the church. The name of the church has Bible in its name. And he is saying that we have to give up and get rid of the Bible. What does he say? He says, in speaking to, as a, now, a spiritual advisor. Notice, he was a pastor, but now he's a spiritual, personal advisor to Oprah Winfrey. And as a spiritual advisor to her, he's telling her, this was in an interview, he's telling her that the people of the culture must accept the relationships of homosexuality and stop looking to the Bible as its best defense. He says, quote, I think culture is already there and the church will continue to be even more irrelevant when it quotes letters from 2,000 years ago as their best defense. When you have in front of you flesh and blood people who are your brothers and sisters, and aunts and uncles and co-workers and neighbors and they love each other and just want to go through life with someone unquote this is what he says did you see how he denigrated the Bible and simply called it letters from 2,000 years ago and then he puts love at the very top and says we don't really love our people if we're not allowing them and endorsing their homosexuality, their sin, their natural sin and biblical sin, unbiblical practices. He says it's unloving. Well, Oprah really likes this, you know. She likes this and she um, props him up and, and, and all. But notice, these now, Rob Bell, who used to be a pastor of a mega church, who denigrates and demeans the Bible, he now does not go to church. He does not go to church. Here's what he does. It says, after he moved to Los Angeles and teamed up with Oprah Winfrey, he was the pastor of a 10,000 member 
Mars Hill Bible Church. He is no longer attending church and says he, his wife, and the group of friends they are with journey with and are churching. These are their terms. Journeying with and churching all the time in service to their surrounding communities. So he has no need of church anymore. Even though he used people, gullible and foolish people, in order to enrich himself and then to get the favor of Oprah Winfrey and then now presumably to be making plenty of money even as her personal spiritual advisor, he has no need to go to church. He has no need to hear the Bible. He has no need to know about God. He's already got it all figured out. And he even thinks that Oprah Winfrey is a wise woman. Quote, she has taught me more about Jesus or what Jesus has for all of us and what kind of life Jesus wants us to live more than almost anybody in my life. He says of Oprah Winfrey. That means he's not reading the Bible and he is consulting someone who thinks that all religions are okay and will take us to heaven. Theologically, how could he put his confidence in anyone like that? And then morally, she funds the butchering of babies all around the world. She endorses it and funds it. Things like that she does, along with promoting homosexuality and everything else. She does these kinds of things. So theologically and morally, he is bankrupt for trusting in another bankrupt person. But this is what happens when one deviates from the Bible. Now, this does not only happen among rich and famous people or megachurch pastors. It's not only there. A personal example. In Oklahoma, I used to uh, be uh, briefly involved with a church called Shawnee Bible Church in Shawnee, Oklahoma. Shawnee Bible Church. That church also, a small church with only about 20, 25 people, and that small church, the pastor, he told me personally that he thinks that the way of preaching and teaching the Bible in public, in, in pulpits, and in, in small group Bible studies, that goes verse by verse and teaches the people what the Bible says and means, that that approach is impractical. It's impractical, and it is irrelevant to the people. And he says that the more that people do that, the less practical and relevant the people are, and they're just petty people. They don't try to obey God or anything like that. They don't know what it means to love God and know God. He says, if you want, you can read the Bible personally, but don't expect that in the church. Don't expect that in any church meetings. These were the things he said. And his name is, in the name of the church, Shawnee Bible Church. This is the irony that there are many people who press, profess to be Christians, but don't obey those verses in Hebrews, James, and 1 Peter, words of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. And there are people who claim to believe in the Bible, but have nothing to do with the Bible. It's foreign to them. They don't read it. 
They don't read it from cover to cover. They don't memorize it. They don't seek to understand what it means. They don't go search out and seek out people or books, reliable people and books, who will help them to correctly understand the Bible. They don't do that. And yet, they claim to be biblical. They claim to be Christians. They claim to be followers of Jesus. I say all this in my introduction because it is necessary at times to remind ourselves that this is rare and it is unique to be simply reading and studying the Bible for your own salvation and for your your own spiritual life. It's rare. It does not happen in very many places around the world. And this is what we should long for. This is what we need. Here, we're going to read in this passage about why it is so important and what it produces in us. Let's see. Verse 41. Psalm 119, verse 41. Why is this so necessary and important for us to know? The first verse, he says, May your loving kindnesses also come to me, O Lord, your salvation according to your word. He, this is David. He is born again. He's a man of God, and he's even a prophet of God. And he knows that he needs God's loving kindnesses. He's calling on God to continue to give him loving kindness. Loving kindness or love or mercy There are various ways to translate this term. Whatever it is, we know it is that which God possesses and He needs more of. Those blessings, those capabilities, the the power, the wisdom to change us and transform us, God possesses it and we don't have it. He knows this. He's been enlightened to this fact because God loved him and changed him and opened his eyes to this realization. That he did not understand the love of God. He did not have the love of God. He did not experience this love of God before his conversion. But now, after his conversion, he knows. The love of God has been poured out in his heart by the Holy Spirit. Romans 5, 1-5. That love has come into him. God has demonstrated his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He has come to understand that that verse applies to him. That Christ did indeed die for my sins. And so, he wants more of this love. He wants this love to abound in his life. He wants this love of God to grow more and more day by day. And so he prays for it. And there's nothing wrong with praying for it. When we pray according to his will, he hears us. He hears us when we pray according to his will. And when we pray, Lord, give me more of your love then God will answer that prayer. Don't be a double-minded man, unstable in all your ways. Ask in faith and pray according to God's will, and He will answer that prayer. This is the kind of prayer we should have. But just as many people misunderstand the love of God, we ought to regard that and, and recognize the fact that many people misunderstand what it means for God to love us and for us to love God. But He will explain here. He will explain so that we not misunderstand. He says here, Your salvation according to your word. Your salvation according to your word. All that relates to our salvation originates in God's love for us. Well, if it's salvation, then that implies that we are sinners. 
we were, are lost. When we are born in this world, in our natural condition, we are alienated from God, and we need God to manifest His love toward us. And when He does, we are saved from sin. People don't want to understand that when they consider the love of God. They think of the love of God as that which is unconditional to every person, always and forever. To such an extent that many people think that hell does not exist. And that nobody needs to know about sin before they're saved or before they go to heaven. Nobody needs to turn away from sin and repent of sin. And that salvation is definite and automatic for every person and even the devil and his demons. Even the most wicked among men one day will experience salvation. That's what they believe. But no. The loving kindness of God is particular, as it says there, come to me. Come to those specifically who desire it, who want it, who long for it, and who are caused to long for it by the work of the Holy Spirit. And it relates to our salvation. We want God's love because it saves us from sin. As James said, which is able to save your souls. It saves us. And this is why we want it. This is why we long for it. This is why we crave it. And we want this spiritual food in our life, no matter what. And all of this happens according to your word. It happens according to the word of God. Salvation doesn't happen because somebody invents a new way of learning about God. A new way of knowing about God. A new way of declaring some of the attributes of God. Or the afterlife. Or where we came from and where we're going. Where, where, uh, what, was, what was the purpose of God creating the world? It doesn't happen because of human speculation. That's what all of the false religions and philosophies of the world promote. They promote human inventions and speculations. These people are fanatics and they are drunk with their own wisdom. The false religions and philosophies. No. When salvation truly happens, it happens according to God's word. Romans 10, 17. So faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. That's why the word of God is so important. That for us to read, meditate, memorize, and spread abroad. We need this word. It's the only way. Romans 10, 17. It does not say, so faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of man. It's not the word of man. It's not the speculations of man. It's the word of Christ, which is this Bible. Genesis to Revelation is the word of Christ. This is what we need to read. This is what we need to know. Verse 42. 42. He has an immediate desire, a practical application, a practical need. So I shall have an answer for him who reproaches me, for I trust in your word. He trusts in God's word. That happened upon his conversion. He knows it is the living and abiding word of God. He doesn't doubt that it's the word of God. He's unshakable in that foundation. This Bible is the word of God. From Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22-21. From in the beginning to Amen, come Lord Jesus. All the way from the beginning to the end of the Bible, he trusts that it is the word of God. Nothing will shake him from that. And with that as the platform, he says, So I shall have an answer for him who reproaches me. You see, 
When we begin to trust the Bible and we say what the Bible says about the murder of babies is true. What the Bible says about fornication is true. What the Bible says about adultery is true. What the Bible says about uh, idolatry is true. What the Bible says about, about any issue is true. Once we begin to be, have that conviction and begin to speak it and live it, what will happen? People will reproach us. They will denounce us. They'll mock and ridicule us and they will want nothing to do with us. They'll jettison us. They'll isolate us. They'll, they'll send us away. They will slander us behind our back. They'll do all kinds of things. They will reproach us. But what do we need at that time? We need the sure confidence of the Word of God and we need an answer. The answer comes from the Bible. Just as Jesus, when He was tempted in the wilderness, Luke 4, when He was tempted in the wilderness, He had an answer to the devil for everything. A biblical answer. Not something strange and obscure, but things in the Bible. He used the Bible to attack Satan. And even when Satan misquoted the Bible, Jesus used the Bible and correctly interpreted that to Satan. This is what we need. We need an answer anytime people ask us. 1 Peter 3.15 But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you for the reason, for the hope that is in you with gentleness and respect. By that means, we are answering people when they bring up objections, when they are speculative towards the things we say and do. It has to come because we trust in the Bible and we use the Bible to explain to them what it is to be a Christian. We have to have an answer. This answer is not only for David, but Peter says in 1 Peter 3.15, it's also for us to have. We need to have a ready answer whenever people object. Verse 43. And do not take the word of truth utterly out of my mouth, for I wait for your ordinances. Here, because he waits for or hopes in God's ordinances, everything that he would want for his own comfort and consolation, for his own hope, is in God's Word. He waits for God's Word or hopes in God's Word. Because of this, he does not want God to ever let the Word of Truth, that is the Bible, the Gospel, to ever completely leave his mouth. He wants to never be muzzled and mortified by the onslaught of persecutors. He never wants that to happen. He wants to be able, whenever that happens, to be able to open his mouth and to utter whatever he needs to utter, this word of truth, to anyone who objects, to anyone who disdains the truth. So don't take it out of my mouth, Lord. Don't let that happen. Give me boldness. Give me courage. Whenever I open my mouth, whenever I speak, to speak what your word says without reservation and with full conviction. Don't take it out. Don't let that ever happen. Don't let them see my silence and walk away smug and think, ah, I got him. Ah, the Bible doesn't answer that. Oh, Jesus isn't the answer for everything. 
Don't let the unbeliever, the skeptic, walk away like that. Because when the word of truth is not spoken, then the unbeliever walks away thinking he's right and the Christian is wrong. People say, well, it's not about arguments. You have to show you that you love them, and it's not about arguments. Well, that is half true. It's half true. It is about living a godly Christian life. Of course it is. We cannot be hypocrites. But it is about winning arguments, and it is about destroying their speculations. 2 Corinthians 10.4 says, 2 Corinthians 10.4, But we are destroying speculations and everything that raises itself up against the knowledge of God, and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. That was 2 Corinthians 10, verses 4 and 5. This is what we need to do. We need to be ready with these answers to destroy these speculations that people present. And how important is it? How important? Titus tells us, or Paul in Titus chapter 1, Titus chapter 1, he says to Titus, as Titus teaches the people how he and they should conduct themselves with their detractors, with the false teachers all around them. Titus 1 verse 9. Titus himself as the pastor should be holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching that he may be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. Titus is supposed to hold fast this word of truth and exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. Well, exhortation and refutation require argumentation, reasoning, logic. They, they require knowledge and the ability to articulate that knowledge so that the one who objects is silenced. Why do we say silence? Verse 10, Titus 1.10, For there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, meaning the Jewish people. Not exclusively the Jewish people, but especially them because they are their proximate enemies. And what does he say should happen? Verse 11, who must be silenced, who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. They must be silenced. Well, how are they going to be silenced? You can't take, you can't take adhesive tape and put it on their mouth, right? You're not going to silence them that way. You have to silence them the way Jesus did and the way the apostles did when he silenced the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Sometimes they will learn their lesson and sometimes it will take their some time to learn their lesson. We know from Matthew 22, Jesus silenced the Sadducees, but the Pharisees did not learn from that. And then they asked him, what is the great commandment of the law? And then he silences them after that. After that, in another exchange, he silences the Pharisees then. You have to silence them by reason, by logic, by the evidence. It must be done. To the extent that they will keep quiet long enough to listen, silence them so that they have nothing more to say and that they not upset families, even whole families, for the sake of sordid gain. 
You see, they're not in the ministry for the right reasons. There are many, many people who are not in the ministry for the right reasons. They are there for the wrong reasons. These people must be silenced because they're in there for sordid gain. So open the mouth, know what you're talking about, study, ask, don't, don't give up, don't be discouraged. Have full confidence in this word, trust in it, hope in it, and speak up when necessary. Not only is it for those on the outside, but this word is for us on the inside. Notice Psalm 119, verse 44. 119.44 says, So I will keep your law continually forever and ever. It's not so that he may also answer other people, but he also wants to obey God's law. He wants to obey it continually forever and ever. He uses two expressions here, continually and forever and ever, in order to reiterate and stress the fact that he's not going to be somebody who casually obeys God. He's not a casual Christian. And he's not a now and then Christian. He's not a, a, a twice a year Christian. And he's not a Christian who's hot for two or three weeks and then he's cold for a week or two. Hot for another maybe four or five weeks and then he's cold for another week or two or a month or, or six months. And then he's hot again for several months and then he's cold again. He, he's wanting not to be this way. He does not want to be haphazard. He wants to be consistent. He wants to obey consistently. He knows this is dependent upon the love of God. If he continues to pray for God's love to be poured out in his life, his gracious, gracious ways in him, then he will keep God's law continually forever and ever. He will do so. He's not going to be a fickle and unreliable Christian. He's going to be a true Christian who endures until the end. Matthew 24, 13. Jesus said, He who endures until the end shall be saved. We cannot be tossed here and there. We cannot be double-minded. We have to be completely resolute. And this resolution manifests itself in endurance. Endurance. What God started in us, He will continue to to complete in us, but in the meantime, we must continue. He wants to continue forever and ever. Often, we are distracted and discouraged when we see people around us. We see people around us who say, I am a, am a Christian, I am a believer, I follow Christ, I believe in the Bible, I believe Jesus died for my sins. Yet, there is enormous inconsistency in their life. They're hot for a short time and then cold. Hot again and then cold. And then sometimes the cold lasts a long, long time. People like this are not truly being transformed by the love of God. The love of God does not make us perfect in this life. There's no one who will ever be perfect or even close to that according to 1 John 1. 5 to 10. No one will be perfect or even close to per perfect. But we will be changed and we will grow and we go, will go from infancy to maturity in our Christian life. That will happen and it will happen progressively. It will happen gradually and sometimes over some sins by leaps and bounds. He will completely give us deliverance suddenly from certain sins. And other sins 
are those sins that remain with us and will remain with us until our deathbed. We will, however, need to fight it. War against it every day. Nevertheless, we ought to continue and not be haphazard. Verse 45. When we think of this long struggle of the Christian life, we, we ought not to be discouraged because the love of God produces verse 45. And I will walk at liberty for I seek your precepts. I will walk at liberty for I seek your precepts. Because he seeks the words of God, that's all he wants. Because of that, he knows he walks or lives his life in liberty. Not in bondage, not in slavery, but in liberty. When he says liberty, he has this sense of freedom, not a sense of burden in obeying God. When he considers idols, he says, oh yes, of course, why would I want to worship an idol now that I've come to know the true and living God? So any idol in my life, I want to reject completely. I don't want it around. I don't want it to control me. I don't want to worship it. I don't want to be dedicated to it. I don't want to be addicted to it. I want no idol in my life. And when he considers God, he says, it's not a big deal. Yeah, I might struggle in getting rid of it, but it's no big deal. I'll do whatever it takes for the Lord. I will obey the Lord in whatever. And I will walk at liberty. He has this jubilation. He has this desire in, within him to have great zeal for the things of God. And it's liberty to him. This is the way it ought to be. God takes away that burden of sin from us and he gives us the burden of Christ and Christ says, my burden is easy and my load is light. Matthew 11, verse 30. Jesus gives that to us and this is why he says, it's liberation, it's freedom to obey God. God himself is not a slave. God is free. He does whatever he pleases. So if we attach ourselves to the will of God, then we are being free. We are at liberty when we do His will. Okay, now with this term liberty, however, there are two deviations. There are two deviations from this word liberty. Biblically speaking, when we seek God's precepts, we are liberated. We are free. We have freedom in Christ. When we are doing God's will according to the word of Christ. That is true biblical liberty. But what happens? This common problem happens. People in the name of liberty will practice licentiousness. They'll, they will practice looseness or libertarianism. They will practice what is also called antinomianism. Anti-law. That's what antinomianism means. They want nothing to bind them. They want nothing to control them. They don't want anything to tell them what to do or anyone to tell them what to do. Even they don't want God to tell them from the Word of God, even from the pages of the New Testament, even from the words of Jesus. And some of them own red-letter Bibles where our modern editions have made it easy for us to figure out when Jesus is speaking. They even don't want anything to do with the words of Jesus in those Bibles. That's how they practice their antinomianism or libertarianism. Liberty, they call it Christian liberty in the wrong sense. They practice that and they live a licentious life. 
And many of those people are in Christian churches. That is unbiblical. Jude, in Jude verse 4, describes them well. He says, For certain persons have crept in unnoticed. Ungodly persons who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. They turn the grace, the grace that is true biblical grace, they turn it into licentiousness or looseness, antinomianism, and they deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. They deny one way of salvation, and they say, you can live as you please. God's grace will take care of it all. It's all of grace. Therefore, don't worry about it. Be who you want to be. There's nothing for you to transform or reform in your life. No repentance of sin. Don't worry about any of that. And they say to the people who are teaching biblical obedience, you are a legalist. You are a legalist. That's not true. When we follow the word of Christ, we are not legalists. We are faithful to Christ. But then here's another problem, another deviation, and it will be on the other side. We may say the first one is to the left, walking off the beaten path to the left, and the other one is on the right. On the right, we have people with their human traditions, traditions of men. They invent rituals, they invent doctrines, they invent theologies and practices for individuals, for families, and for churches to obey. And they say, you must do these things, otherwise you're not loving God. Otherwise you're not following Christ. You must do these things. Those things which deviate from the Bible. They claim they don't deviate from the Bible, but they actually do deviate from the Bible. They will heap additional rules, statutes, commandments, laws upon people as individuals and groups and, and put a burden on them and make them feel like they don't love Christ if they're not doing these specific things. Whether it is personal or ritual or whatever. If you don't do it like they say, then you're not following Christ, you're not loving Christ. And then they will say of those who reject that and who simply want to follow the Bible, you are licentious. You are a libertarian. You are an antinomian. No. That's not true either. When we reject the traditions and rituals of men and follow just what's in the Bible, we are not libertarians. We're not antinomians. We're not people who want to live a loose life. No. That's not true. Both are deviations. Both on the right, to the right path and on the left path, those both are deviations. We have to stay on the straight path and not stray either direction. Stay on the straight path of the Word of God and then we will understand true obedience, true liberty. Then, verse 46. Psalm 119, 46. I will also speak of your testimonies before kings and shall not be ashamed. Now, what has happened to him. The love of God poured out in him. God's loving kindness is poured out in him. Has given him immense courage. He has immense courage and he signals this courage by saying, I will even stand before a king or kings 
And I will tell them of who you are. I will tell them of the true and living God. I will tell them to reject idols. I will tell them of the gospel of Christ. I will tell them of the only way of salvation, even though these kings have never heard it before, and even though they will think it's strange and fanatical that I say those things, I'm going to say it. See, he does not respect men in the sense that he doesn't try to please men. He's not a people pleaser, a man pleaser. He's not seeking to garner people's favor and therefore have God's wrath on him. Or even to humiliate the name of Christ in the presence of someone else. He's got this kind of courage. He wants to speak of God's testimonies before even kings. Kings who have weapons. Kings who have armies. Kings who have a lot of force that they could use either in a private setting or in warfare and out openly nation against nation against him. He says, I'm going to tell the truth. And this is the way I will be. I will speak this kind of truth before kings. Many of us, we can't even muster enough courage to speak the truth to somebody who has no power, somebody who's our neighbor, somebody who's our relative, somebody who's our coworker. We can't even muster enough courage to do that. We walk away. We cower. We keep quiet. We won't speak to them. We won't say what the Word of God says to them. But this should not be the case. We have to pray for courage, great courage and great boldness so that we stand before kings. And Jesus told us in Matthew 10, He told us not to be anxious even when they bring us before governors and kings. He said, don't worry about it. Don't be anxious for the Holy Spirit will give you what to say in that hour. The Holy Spirit, by the word of God, will tell you what to say, will give you that boldness, will give you the accurate words to pronounce. So don't worry about it. Just do it. Just know what God expects and do it. Pray for it and do it. Not only do we common Christians have a problem with this, but even pastors have a problem with this. Pastors have a problem with it just like the common Christian does, but pastors have a problem with it when they are before the authorities. When was the last time any pastor, pastor of a small church or a mega church, who had the audience of a governor, of a mayor, of a president, of a king, and even of a dictator, told that authority the truth. No, that doesn't happen. It rarely happens. Instead, they want pictures. They want the, the pictures, uh, you know, a photo op. They want those kinds of things with smiles and handshakes and hugs and, and with the glass of wine in front of them and things like that. That's what they want. They don't want to tell the truth. They don't do that. Even though many of these kings and authorities, they have committed some flagrant, open sins. They won't say a word about it. I'm not there for that purpose, they say. Well, you should be there for that purpose. We all should be there for that purpose. Call out sin whenever necessary and not be ashamed. Verses 47 and 48 We'll take these two together. 
And I shall delight in your commandments, which I love. And I shall lift up my hands to your commandments, which I love. And I will meditate on your statutes. Twice now, the prophet David says, I love. These words I love. I delight in them, and I will lift up my hands to your commandments. Lifting up the hands, it might be that he's saying, I'm lifting up, as we do in prayer, manifesting our own emptiness with our empty hands, and calling upon God to give us more of his mercy and grace and love, so that he fills our hands and we are equipped to do his will. It may be for that reason, or it may be because lifting up the hands was also done for swearing an oath. And for making a vow. When I lift up my hands, like Abraham did in Genesis 14, he lifted up his hands because he swore an oath to God that he was going to be faithful to God. He knows who God is. He's come to know him. And he is determined and resolved to do God's commandments until the very end of his life. This is why he says, I shall delight. I shall lift up my hands. He has this complete resolve to do God's will. He's determined to do it, and he delights in doing it, because he loves them. He has come to love the Word of God. You see, when he prayed for God's loving kindnesses to come to him, it produced what we have just seen. But it has also produced this immense love of the Word of God. And because it has produced this this immense love of the Word of God, he delights in it, he is vowing to keep God's Word, or he is depending completely and with his open hands, God, I need your mercy and I need your love to come and be poured out within me so that I live accordingly. Because I love these words. I used to despise them. I used to be foreign to them. They used to be bitter to me, but now I love them. I love your word. Those who are truly born again have a love of the word of God. We saw that in 1 Peter. 1 Peter 1, 22 to chapter 2, verse 3. Peter himself says, If you have tasted the kindness of the Lord, then that kindness of the Lord produces in us a love and a longing for the word of God. This is what we need. Therefore, as we started, when we said that both in small churches and in large churches, there is a paucity, there is a great scarcity of this love of God's Word. The people who promote this do not understand the love of God in the first place. Because if they understood the love of God in the first place, true love and how we ought to love one another, it would produce in them life yet it produces death in them. It would produce in them liberty, and yet they're still enslaved to their sins. And it would produce love of God and love of God's Word in them, but it doesn't. They spite it, and they denigrate it, and they relegate it to an old uh, tradition or to ancient, uh, ancient texts or old letters that we should have nothing to do with. You, you might study it if you are a history student, But you don't really need to know it as the word of truth, as the word of God. But those who have the love of God, they they have life, they have liberty, and they have true love. They have the true love of God. May that be true of us. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.